welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. This episode is sponsored by Netting Pros. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Netting professionals specializes in the design, fabrication, and installation of custom netting for backstops, batting cages, dugouts, BP screens, and ball carts. They also design and install digital graphic wall padding, windscreen, turf, turf protectors, dugout benches, dugout cubbies, and more. Netting Professionals is an official partner of the ABCA and continues to provide quality products and services to many high school, college, and professional fields, facilities, and stadiums throughout the country. Netting Professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Contact them today at 844-620-2707 or info at nettingpros.com. Visit them online at www.nettingpros.com or check out Netting Pros on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all their latest products and projects. Make sure to let CEO Will Miner know that the ABCA sent you. Now on to the podcast. Next up on the ABCA podcast is ABCA Diversity Committee member and D.C. Girls Baseball Coach Bonnie Hoffman. Bonnie has spent a lifetime in the game of baseball. She's also one of the smartest people I've been around. She had an opportunity to play in an all-girls baseball league growing up in New York. Her path took her to the D.C. area when her parents moved there, and after law school, she found the Eastern Women's Baseball Conference and pitched for over 20 years. D.C. Girls Baseball is a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting girls' participation in baseball and fostering their love for the game. Bonnie was a public defender for over 20 years, so she has a unique perspective on diversity. Currently, she is the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers Director of Public Defense Reform and Training. This is a phenomenal episode on holistic coaching, servant leadership, youth practice planning, Bonnie's work with DC Girls Baseball, nonprofits, phenomenal fundraising tips, grant writing, differences and similarities of being a trial lawyer and coaching, and with her background as a public defender and public defense reform, we get into implicit biases as well. Let's welcome Bonnie Hoffman to the podcast. Here with Bonnie Hoffman, coach of DC Girls Baseball Club, pitcher in the Eastern Women's Baseball Conference for over 20 years, and ABC Diversity Committee member. You and I met two years ago at the convention in Nashville, and um, our relationship has blossomed since then. And I said it uh, during the virtual, you are one of the smartest people that I've, I've ever met. So, Bonnie, thanks for coming on with me. It's, it's my pleasure. Uh, you, may, you may question about whether I am one of the smartest people you met by the time we get done, but... Can, can you talk about your path in baseball? So, you know, I've had a really strange one. Um, and I think, you know, it's not until you become an adult that you realize that that pathway was a series of very fortuitous things. So I, I grew up in New York. Um, and when I was a, a kid uh, back in the early 70s, um, you know, I, I played locally. We moved to a town in New York, Oceanside, New York, when I was in the fourth or fifth grade. They had an all-girls baseball league there. Um, I, it was the norm. Like, I didn't know that that was such an anomaly to find an all-girls baseball league in my town. 
Um, it wasn't until much later that I realized not only was it unusual nationally, it was unusual for New York. Like this was a one-off, completely just random happy place to find myself as a kid. Um, and so I had the opportunity to play, not just play baseball as a, a kid, in a as a girl, but in an all-girls league with all-girls teams and, and you know, just a, a wonderful experience for me. We moved when I was in high school to Virginia. Um, Bonnie, who started the who started the girls baseball league there? I, I have no idea. It was there when I got there, and it was still there when I left. So, like, how long had they been running it when you moved? Did you know? I, no, no. I mean, you know, like, that's that bubble of oblivion you live in as a kid. You you have no interest in worrying like where something came from or where it's going to be. Um, and, Is it and still running? I, I have. I would be shocked. I've, I've heard zero about it. And I feel like at this point, if there were an all-girl uh, baseball league still running, that I would probably know about it by now. Um, but it was just a complete one-off, like completely locally run, right? Like the, the local Carvel sponsored one team and the car wash sponsored a team and the hair, you know, the barbershop sponsored its team um, kind of thing. So, you know, I didn't know that it would be anything different at, at the time I started. By the time I left um, New York and we moved to, to uh, Virginia, I was in high school. I had a pretty good clear at that, you know, pretty, pretty clear sense of the world at that point that this was something unusual and not the norm. Um, and so when I got to Virginia, I opted to play for my softball team in high school. It wasn't even a, a thought that I would try out for or play on, on our uh, baseball team. Went up to college. I picked up different sports when I was in college. And it wasn't until I left college um, that I really had a chance to come back to baseball. So I, after college, I went to law school. And when I was in law school, I was playing slow pitch softball and ended up again, like in the land of fortuitous places to end up, ended up in, uh, at that time, in, in the Chesapeake area of Virginia. Was there for just a year for a, a clerkship that I had some women that I was playing with in the softball league there said, you should come play baseball. They had a, a women's baseball team at the time. It was one of the few women's baseball teams in the country. Um, they had a, a women's baseball team there. And I, I think maybe there were a couple of teams there. Maybe we played a couple of teams from some other places. And so again, like I just felt like this was going to be something normal. I was going to find it again. Um, after I left, the, the Chesapeake area, I moved up to Northern Virginia, which is where I am now, and went looking. And right away, right there, the Eastern Women's Baseball Conference was founded back in 1995. Um, so by the time I got here, it already existed. Um, you know, I just, I, again, I was just really fortunate to land at a place where this was available to me um, and had an opportunity to, to, to continue to play. Um, you know, the league is, is still moving along. Um, and, you know, we've had a chance through our league to connect with lots of other women's teams all over the country. So that. How, of, how many leagues are there throughout the United States? You know, there aren't a lot of women's. There are a lot of women's teams, but not a lot of women's leagues. I mean, you know, to operate a league in a region, you have to have enough yeah. players to, to, to make that viable. Over the years, there have been women's leagues on and off New England, uh, California, um, Canada has a wonderful infrastructure and they do have a, a fairly robust women's program uh, there, but there are pockets of women's teams 
all over the country. Uh, the Chicago area has a, a couple of teams, um, you know, so just sort of, they, they kind of populate themselves. Um, 20 years you pitched. I mean, I know, I know how beat up I was at the end of playing. And I mean, good for you to keep going. Like, what was the driving force to keep going? It, it makes me very happy, yeah. right? Like, you do something because it makes you happy. Um, I have a, a, a brand new elbow to go with it. And so it's, you know, very viable and it, it's good to go for another, right? I feel like the warranty on the on the new ligament is good for, for probably another 10 years. Um, so, you know, and that was at the time, a really tough choice to make. It was actually tough for me to find a lot of doctors that were really open to, to doing Tommy John for not, somebody not only just as a recreational player, but to come in and say, you know, here I am as, as a woman, I want to continue to be able to pitch. I want to continue to be able to, to, to be athletic um, and find somebody who was, was open to looking at that and, and taking it seriously as an athlete, as opposed to just like, this was going to, you know, let me lift heavy objects or like live my day-to-day life. Who inspired you to get it in the coaching side then? You know, I, I can't really put my, my finger on any one thing that I would say was like the thing for me. I love to teach. Um, you know, it's a, a lot of the same stuff that I do in my legal practice. Um, I started coaching when I was in law school, uh, a teammate and I had looked for something we could do that didn't involve having to be around a bunch of other law students, right? Because they're miserable, miserable people. And so we wanted to go someplace and do something where we could just like have a good time. And so there was a, a local little league right behind, uh, they played at a field right behind our law school. Uh, both of us had played, you know, softball and, and baseball and stuff growing up. And so we just went to them and said, we'd love to, to coach a team. So we coached like a t-ball team. Um, it was the perfect outlet for us. And so it, it really sort of opened up to me the idea of coaching my legal work. And at the time, a, a very heavy trial practice made it hard to, to coach for a long time. So I did a lot of umpiring, I did other stuff. Um, but as I had some additional opportunities and, and really with DC Girls Baseball, a lot of great opportunities um, with them and, and professionally to, to do some other things with my career, it really opened up a door to come back to, to doing coaching full time. And you talk a lot about just showing up. You know, you always talk about when we get together with the diversity committee, when you went to your first convention and just kind of, and I don't know if that was your first convention, but you just walked into the diversity committee. Can you talk a little bit about that, about just, you didn't know anything about it and then you just show up? You know, it's a big thing in life, right? Showing up is the first step to something happening. If you don't show up, then nothing can happen. Um and sometimes you, you have to, and it's, I think, a really tough thing, especially for, for women, for people who may feel marginalized, to invite yourself into a space that maybe somebody hadn't invited you into or that you're waiting to be invited into to make sure that you belong there. Um, so it was, it was my first convention. Uh, it was, I saw it on the agenda um, and have a lot of interest professionally. I, I work in the criminal defense field, do a lot of work around um, racial equity. And, and so for me, it was a, a really natural area to, to have an interest in to begin with. Um, the meeting said it was open um, and the door was open when I showed up. And that's sometimes what you have to do. You know, if you want opportunities to happen, sometimes you have to just go and invite yourself. Um, because sometimes if you wait for somebody to recognize that they needed to invite you, it, it's going to be too late. Um, 
and we've talked about this too, you know, how do you turn to mentors in a, in a field that where people don't look like you, you know, how do you find those mentors in a field where people don't look like you? You know, you have to, there, there are always, you'll always find a few that may look like you. And sometimes you have to recognize that somebody doesn't have to look like you to help you. And that's, you know, a really important thing for, for other people. You have to put yourself out there and be willing to open the door for somebody else um, and recognize sometimes, you know, you may not realize and appreciate when you come from a position of, of privilege, whether that is being male, whether that is being white, um, that doors open for you. You don't realize that the door opened for you and it didn't open for somebody else because it's the norm for you. It's, it's always open. It always happens that way. And there are always people that look like you. Um, and so it always feels very welcoming. And so, you, you know, when you become much more attuned to the fact that that door isn't open for everybody, that not everybody is in the room and not everybody is being given equal opportunity when they are in the room, you really start to, to recognize um, and the importance of, of letting others in and, and allowing others and making the, not allowing them, but making a proactive right, outreach to make sure that they're there. Um, so sometimes you just have to find people who are going to bring something to the table for you, even if they're not exactly like you. you know, sometimes you have, to, you have to kind of find your own your own pieces that you can take from different people. You know, you talk about being an advocate. Is there a way to kind of not feel somebody out, but maybe kind of reach out and, and see if they are an advocate? I think that if you are somebody who's looking for someone to help you, sometimes you just have to like put yourself out there. And it's, it's a really easy thing to say when you're on the other side, right? When you put yourself out there and had a positive experience, it is really hard. And, and for a lot of people, you know, you may put yourself out there a lot of times without getting a response or the response isn't what you were looking for. Um, but sometimes you just have to, to kind of put yourself out there. You have to listen to what people are saying. You have to look at what they're, what they're doing. Um, you know, and sometimes you just have to have to point something out, right? That something's missing from the room. Somebody is, is not at the table um, and be willing to do it. It's probably easier for me in that I don't make my living as a coach. I don't have to worry as much about um, a, how something may go the wrong way if I put myself out there, or I reach out to somebody and, and it doesn't work out or I get rebuffed or um, because I don't have to make my living through my network, to co you know, my coaching network. Um, but, it, you know, I think it's the same professionally in a lot of things and, and that willingness to put yourself out there and to recognize sometimes. And again, it's easy to say when it is successful. Um, it is really tough because there are a lot of times when it, it goes really poorly. We got on to, to nonprofits a little bit during the virtual. We talked a little bit about grant writing. I thought you had some great points because we have had people reach out. I want to get something started in my area. You brought up some great points on grant writing that I didn't think of. My wife has done that for the schools that she's she's worked in, and I know how hard it is, but you brought up some great points on, on grant writing. Can you go into that? So, you know, I think it, it's very attractive to get a grant. Um, I was... Actually, was just dealing with, with some stuff professionally where somebody asked me, like, well, can't we just, like, go get a grant for that? Um, it's not that simple. And it's not just that it's not that simple because it's there's a limited amount of money or a limited amount of opportunity. Grant writing is a skill. 
Um, and there are a lot of things that come with getting a grant. It's not, grants don't just come as a pool of money that you can then just choose to spend as you want. There are often a lot of requirements, uh, record keeping, data collection, um, infrastructure, tax things, or all these things sometimes you have to do to manage a grant. And if you don't have the infrastructure and the resources to do it, the grant may not be worth the, 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 what you're getting. Um, you know, sometimes getting a small grant that has a lot of requirements, if you don't have the infrastructure to handle it, you're going to spend all of your, your money and all of your time um, managing the grant rather than, in, you know, spending the money versus what you can do if you just raise the money, um, you know, just did a fundraiser or just got a donation, which is different than getting a grant. Um, you know, if you're interested in getting grants, you really have to do your homework and you have to think about finding some, some folks who are experienced at grant writing. There is a skill to it. Everything from how you figure out your budget and your income, how you present your program. A lot of times grants want data about your operations, how many people you're going to be serving, how many people you've already served, what your demographics look like. And if you don't have that information, it's really hard to do. Uh, they have some, usually some really strict parameters about what's written, how it's written, the guidelines for it. Um, and depending on the degree of the grant, the bigger the grant, the more complicated the process is and the, the more the competition is. If you're looking to do it, look for people who have that as a skill, who do that professionally. Um, and they may be in places you're not expecting. So you may not have a grant writer in your organization, um, but you may find that somebody has does grant writing in their, you know, in their in their day job, so to speak, right? Does it professionally? Um, you know, volunteers with another organization and has done grant writing work for them, and ask them to donate to you, especially if you're if you're a a not for profit or a, you know five hundred one c three organization. Ask if they will donate to you their time to help you write the grant. Um, but you really do have to to do your homework and understand what you're getting into before you get it. It's a really attractive idea. Um, but having written now a, a number of grants, uh, it's it's a really large undertaking. Is there a resource to like dive in? Like, can I just Google like, hey, grant writer, will something pop up if I if I would Google grant writer? You know, I don't, I don't know. I've, I've never uh, done a search that way to, to look for it. We, we do this, uh, you know, professionally, we, we do this and we have a team that does it. Um, you know, it takes us months sometimes to write a single grant application um but the size of the grant is gonna is gonna drive you know how complex the application is and what you need but you know i think you really have to think hard too about what you're planning on doing with the grant um is it sustainable so are you engaging in an activity that is sustainable um is it going to be completely dependent on the grant if you say i want to launch a program to provide baseball opportunities to to girls um in a particular community and I need to get money to get gear and to get uniforms and to do all these things. That's great. What are you doing in year two? Um, because that grant money is probably just coming to you once. Um, how are you going to sustain that? Are you going to be able to operate your program in year two and year three if you don't have that funding? Um, they're going to want to know if we give you a grant, how, what are your plans for sustainability and longevity? How are you going to spend our money? How are you going to track it? Um, and what are you going to produce at the end? And so if you don't have clear ideas about what you're going to do, there's nothing worse, I think, you know, it, go back to this idea we talked about before about showing up. Showing up is one thing. Showing up all the time, really important part of coaching, right? Really important part of mentorship is you can't just show up once. You got to show up all the time. And so if you as a program 
get a grant and you come in or you get a large donation, you come in because you're really excited and enthusiastic and you put something in a community. And then in a year, you don't have the funding for it. You don't have the manpower for it. But then all you have done is, is just created like this moment and then it's gone. And, and you know, that, that can be tremendously damaging to a community to feel like, you know, again, like somebody has just walked away from this, right? Has left this. Um, and so you really do have to think about in any place that's going to give you a, a, the kind of money that you're probably looking for if you're saying you want a grant. Um, they want to already know what your plans are for sustainability going forward. What are some of the best fundraising ideas you've seen out there? I, I am probably a terrible person for that. Um, I, I have other organizations that I do charitable work for. And quite frankly, the best way we've raised money is we just tell people why it's so important for them to just give us the money, right? Get away from the gimmicks, the golf tournaments, the activities. The I tell people that all the time. A golf tournament is a funder, is a friend raiser. It's not a fundraiser. Like that's to keep people interested in the program and what you're doing and not to raise any sort of money off of it. Yep. So right, for, for this other organization, we literally just hold an event where we talk about what our program is. And then we just say like, if you believe in us, if you believe in the kids that we support with this program, just write, write me the check. Um, send me the money because you don't want to spend a ton of time because your time is valuable as well. And you don't want to spend a ton of time to raise a small amount of money. Again, it's, you know, it's sustainability and really thinking about what is it that's going to make your program um, functional. And if you're serious about fundraising, you know, again, think of a budget, think of expenses. The one thing that I will say that I think is uh, a really powerful thing when you're asking people for money it's to be able to be very tangible and specific about what you're asking for. So saying we want money to support our program is very squishy. It's very amorphous about what I'm doing and what that's going to buy. If I say for $77, you're going to be able to provide one kid a uniform, you know, that's where the sponsorship piece comes in like you're spot you're sponsoring balls for the year you're sponsoring helmets for the year you're sponsoring bats for the year you know that that's part of getting people to buy into something bigger than themselves and and that's a great piece of advice there because people do want to know where their money is going towards they do If, if if you're vague about it then they just think they're throwing it into the wind. But if you give them specifics, like this is what the money is actually going to, you've got a much better chance of getting people to donate. Absolutely. And when you individualize it to, to people, you know, it's, it's one thing to feel like I'm buying um, dozens of baseballs. Um, it's hard for me to care about, you know, a gross of baseballs. It's really easy for me to care about an individual human being. And so when you can personalize, what does it cost for one kid to play one season in your program, to have them have baseballs, to have them have a uniform, to have them have field space, to have them, this is what it costs for one kid. And this is what it means for this kid to have this opportunity. You know, you you have to to be able to connect as well, not just you're giving this child an opportunity to play baseball, what that that means um, and, and how you value that. So... How do you feel like coaching has grown in the time that you've been coaching? What do you feel like are some of the differences now from when you first started? For me, I, I think the emphasis on really recognizing the whole of the person, um, and that may be especially because I, I, my work is on the youth side, it was really thinking about the reality that like, we're not in the business. I'm not in the business of making 
the best shortstop. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's not what I'm there to do. Um, I'm there to make the best human beings that I can. Sports is a vehicle for making good people. Um, and as soon as you start to recognize that, and I think that's increasingly, you know, become the case as much as there is, is a very large also operation of making great shortstops, making great pitchers. And there are, there are places and things that that happens. And, and, you know, I think when we start talking about the machinery of baseball, there is absolutely, you know, I think about where, where things were when, when I was a kid and where things are now in the business of baseball and the cost of baseball whole different conversation. You're talking about the individual coach, what individual coaches are doing. I you know that, that awareness of really thinking about the whole of your player. The other thing is, I think there's a ton of innovation going on. I think people have become really open and receptive. And, and it's an interesting thing to see because baseball to me is sort of known as a very static um, sport, right? Really resistant to change. A lot of things that we do because that's just the way it is and to see you know a lot more openness and around innovations in building styles catching styles um you know just is is fantastic uh, you know i'm thinking about you know, some stuff actually that i saw at the, at the convention this year about you know, leads and steals and really just thinking completely differently than you know, anybody had been doing before and it makes a ton of sense you listen to it and you're like well of course why, why are, you're right. Why have we been doing it that other way? That, that, that other way is terrible. Um, you know, so you're seeing a ton of that, that innovation as well. Um, but I think there's also a really big divide. Um, the, the, the business side of baseball and the cost for kids who do want to get those extra things out of, out of the sport it makes it increasingly difficult for kids to be able to compete. Um, you know, that drive to need to be at a showcase to, to be, you know, when I look and see that you're, you're having travel teams for eight U kids, um, you know, the FOMO, it, the FOMO is real. The, the FOMO in the baseball community is, is real right now. It's, it's just really devastating to think about what you're trying to do and tell an eight year old, a 10 year old, a 12 year old, quite frankly, um, you know, that this is, this has got to be a, such a consuming focus and we have to compete and we have to compete at a high level all the time. Um, you know, I, I, I really, it's, it takes, it takes so many kids out of opportunities early. And what you see is, as kids get just a little bit older, um, and you get to 12, 13, all of a sudden the opportunities to just play because it's fun are gone because there aren't kids playing for fun anymore. There aren't local leagues that are really there for just recreational play. Um, everything is geared towards playing so that you can play again at the next level, the next level, the next level. Um, and so it means more and more kids lose opportunities to play early and they never come back. And, you know, there are going to be a lot of kids who uh, maybe a great 12 year old and they may never be a greater player than they are at 12. And there are some kids who are going to be a terrible player. I was that kid. I, if, if I had to choose at eight or nine, I would have cho- I would have, it would have been soccer. I was a much better soccer player at eight or nine than I was a baseball player. I didn't get good at baseball for a, a long time after that. But yeah, I would have I would have been one of those kids that would have never gone on to play a sport in college because it would have been soccer and I was just okay in, in soccer in high school. And so the, the more that, that we do those things, the, the more that we make this 
constantly a, a need to compete and you've got to you know, constantly be chasing the, the best team, the best opportunity. I need really, you're driving so many kids who are looking to just play and get all the things that at the end of the day, I think all of us recognize where the value of playing sports and it, you know, it's not. It's being with your friends. That's a lot of it is getting to hang out with your friends. Building social and emotional skills, learning how to handle defeat, learning how to be a good teammate, learning how to try something new, learning how to fail safely and rebound. Um, you know, th there are so many wonderful values that come from, from sports and we prevent so many kids from getting all of those benefits because we make it too much about the outcome of the game um, and what's on the, you know, what's on the scoreboard. If you're having an eight, you travel team, you're picking who's going to play based on what your outcome is going to be, right? Kids are not getting opportunities because you're worried about the score for an 8U team, a 10U team, a 12U team, a 14U team. You're, you're already, right, like cutting so many kids out of, out of chances to get all the wonderful things that sports can, can bring for them. For somebody that doesn't know about DC Girls Baseball Club, can you talk about DC Girls Baseball Club? Yep. So DC Girls Baseball is an all-girls baseball program. It's based in the DC metro area. We're very clever in our in our naming, um, but we're a program for girls ages. I think right now we're running eight to eighteen, um, and we're largely an opportunity for girls to get to play with other girls. So um, the we field teams in different age groups. Um, a lot of our girls are playing in other places as well. So they may also be playing, you know, our oldest players may be playing on their high school teams. They may be playing in their middle school teams. Some of them are playing travel ball, um, little league. Some of our girls are coming to, to baseball for the first time to a ball and glove sport of any kind for the first time at 10 or 12, or sometimes even older. And it's, you know, the, the wonderful part about that environment is it's a place where it probably would be really tough for a girl to come to baseball for the first time at 12 or 14 and find a place where they're going to be welcome. Um, you know, it's, it's also really wonderful for our girls to have a chance to be around other girls. For most of our girls who are playing, they are maybe one, for some of them, the only girl on their team, sometimes the only girl in their league. And to be, a, you know, be in a place where you have a chance to see that it is all girls. Um, all of our coaching are, are done. All of our coaches are women. And so, you know, the environment and the opportunity for our girls to see that there are lots of other kids like them uh, is tremendous. The other thing that, that happens that I think is really important is it gives them a chance to try things in a space they might not get to try otherwise. You know, when you are a minority in whatever space you're in, you always have to you have to be the best at whatever you're doing. You have to be better than 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 the best to, to really just get an opportunity. Um, you're going to be more likely to be stereotyped, to be marginalized. Um, and so opportunities to try something new that you may not be good at yet, really hard because you often feel like, even if your coach and your teammates are not truly doing this, you feel that if I fail, I won't get another chance. If I strike out, right, I'm not going to get another at bat. If I am trying to learn how to play a new position, I may not get that opportunity if I do it poorly. And, or I may not want to try it at all because I don't want to be seen as, as failing. And so, you know, to be able to come into a place where 
You want to learn to pitch? We're going to teach you how to pitch. You want to try catching? We're going to teach you how to catch. Um, you know, you want to learn something new. This is a place where you can go and be in a space where you don't have to worry about proving it to somebody else or, you know, how somebody else is going to perceive you or whether you're going to fail. You know, I mentioned before, I think one of the most important things you can learn is learning how to fail. Um, you know, failure is going to happen in lots of things in your life. And you have to learn how to fail and that willingness to try things, even though you're going to fail, the willingness to go back to something after you fail once. Um, so to create an environment where that can happen, I, I think is a tremendous opportunity for our girls. They play in, play in a number of all-girl tournaments. There are some really large, so Baseball for All, which is a national organization that provides a lot of baseball opportunities for girls all over the, the country. Um, and sponsors some, some wonderful events that our girls get a chance to, to play. We're now they're in an environment where there are all girls everywhere, um, you know, playing against teams at, at all kinds of levels. Um, the other thing that we've started that I'm, I'm really excited about is we started doing some um, coaching where our high school girls are taking on coaching responsibilities and learning how to coach for our youngest groups of players. So we do some clinics for six, seven, eight-year-olds um, and that chance for them to learn how to coach is a wonderful thing for them to start to see an opportunity for themselves to coach in the future. It's also tremendous for, for these girls who are coming in, you know, as a, a six, seven, eight-year-old to come in and have somebody who may be 14 or 15 or 16, who's a girl who's playing and who's going to teach you how to play. It's just such a, a wonderful opportunity that girls don't see very much. Uh, you know, the reality is, even if we think about women's sports in general, um, even at the highest levels, at the collegiate levels, um, women's teams are predominantly, more than 50% of, of women's collegiate teams are coached by men. Um, you know, and women are, you know, when you talk to women who play sports at every level and of every type, they may tell you that it's a long time before they may see their first female coach, or they may only have one or two female coaches um, that they've seen in, in their career in athletics. It is not common to find as many women coaching in any sport at any level. And so, you know, for our girls to really get a chance to be in an environment where they're gonna have coaches who look like them, who have experienced what they've experienced, who are gonna share some of the things they share, um, is really a, a tremendous opportunity for them. And the idea that we can create other women who can go out and coach their girls and go and coach, whether they're coaching other girls' teams or they're coaching boys' teams, it, it doesn't really matter. It's a chance for, for them to sort of create that next generation of coaches. I, the hard thing for me is I think we talk so much about growth mindset and we know so much more about it, but I don't see as many growth mindsetted people. You know, I, I can't say why the, the world is the way that it is, um, because I think, and again, maybe I'm just in my, my little bubble, um, where we really make, for us, it's, it's a real part of, of what we do as a program. Um, you know, as I said, we're, we're not in this business to, to make the next great shortstop. Um, you know, our girls are, are not calling it. I'd love that all of them have the opportunities that they want, whether that is to play in high school, in college, professionally. Um, the reality for anybody playing a sport, the opportunities that this is, the, this is your career path are small. Um, if what you want to do is be a player, if what you want to do is be a coach, an umpire, and you know, 
an athletic trainer, uh, an administrator. There are a ton of opportunities in sports. But at the end of the day, we're, again, we're, we're in the business, I think, of making good people. Um, and so I, I, for us, we're pretty much surrounded by, um, you know, the, the idea that we're in this for something much bigger than, than just, you know, learning how to, how to hit a baseball. Love it. Can you talk about your time as a volunteer and a mentor with the uh, Washington Nationals Academy? So the National IBA program is a, a really special place for me. Um, I got involved with them again. You know, you, sometimes you just you look for opportunities. You just invite yourself over. Um, so they host, a, they do some some play programs where they're looking for volunteers to come in. Um, and had started just doing some volunteer work uh, with them, where you know, 50 kids, 60 kids outside on a summer day, where they were just hoping, you know, hosting like a big open house or some opportunities to just really bring into the community the the opportunities that the academy had. Um, and then just, you know, looked for opportunities to be able to continue to do some coaching work with them um, and an incredibly like welcoming environment. Um, and nobody there says no, nobody there says, uh, you know, we're not interested. Um, it, it's a place where, and, and the academy is uh, a really exceptional place. It's a place where baseball is a piece of what they do, but it is not all that they do. Um, the academy provides academic uh, opportunities. Um, Nick Sussman was also, great. Nick Sussman uh, did a phenomenal yeah. job on the youth stage. I thought that was the best, maybe the best talk we had of the entire convention was his talk. It's, you know, the, the culture that they create there, whether you're playing baseball at the academy or not, I mean, the academy serves so many more kids than just the kids who are playing baseball. Um, you know, it is a place, they have a garden, <laughs> they do cooking, uh, they do academic support. Um, and the place is a home for so many kids in, in the community. Um, it's open, I, I could have this wrong, maybe it's five days a week, maybe it's four days a week, um, almost year round. It provides opportunities for, for kids. The opportunity to, to you know, just the, the mentorship program there, which matches um, students, uh, scholar athletes. So they call every every student at the, every uh person at the academy, every kid that attends the academy is a scholar athlete. Um, and they take very seriously the academics and the desire to ensure that their kids are getting access to the academic support that they need, the academic growth opportunities they need, uh, the chance to play and to be healthy and, and to just, you know, really be provided every opportunity that, that they can to grow. Idea of the responsibility that teams have to be in their communities. One of the things um, that I think is sort of, that I think is special about the academy is they have some of the, so I know at least on the on the girls' side for the softball, they have a collegiate, maybe Georgetown, um, maybe Howard, I think it's Howard University. Um, their softball team plays at the academy. Um, the girls there get a chance to see girls who look like them um, playing a sport, being in college, um, and, and the opportunities again, right? When you put things in in front of you, when you can see what you want, um, it becomes much more tangible. And so, you know, those chances for for the the kids at the academy to see their future and to have an opportunity for it to be right there, right? It's 
literally feet from you. They are on the field. They're working right there. They're practicing out there. Um, really is a, a, a tremendous opportunity, but there are a ton of other great uh, academy programs in the Chicago Aces, the, you know, the, the RBI programs up in, um, in New York. Um, so the Royals really- are getting it going in Kansas City. They're doing a good job there too. Your, your girls that are in your program that want to get into coaching, what are some of the recommendations that you're, you're telling them to try to get into coaching? So, you know, right now we're working, so our girls in our, our, our learn to coach program are 14, 15 years old. So some of the things we've done with them already is, especially because they're working with younger kids, we spend a lot of time less about how to teach a baseball skill. Um, our girls do tons of drills. They've been exposed to tons of drills. They're doing them right now. Um, but they is really thinking about developmentally what do what do your players need from you? What are they capable of in terms of you know emotionally where they may be? Um, what are their their personal needs from you? Um, we do practice planning with them, so we spend time. They drop the the practice plan we use every week, so they have to figure out what activities we're going to do, what equipment you're going to need, how are you going to conduct the the activity, how are you going to ensure everybody is engaged, um, how are you going to ensure everybody is safe? Um, you know, I think. As you start to get further along, you can start to get into the, the logistics of how you're going to teach, how you feel the ground ball or how you're going to hit. But we really believe, especially for, for really young kids, um, you know, so six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds, it's less important to focus on what kind of footwork you're teaching a six or seven-year-old to feel the ground ball. How are you making them feel about coming to a baseball field? Are you going to make them excited about being there every week? Are you going to make them happy that they're playing and that they want to be there and that they feel like they can be competent and successful and understanding that that can be a lot of different things? Um, And so we really spend a lot more of our focus on how do you do activities that the kids can do that are going to be helpful to them, that are challenging enough to, to be engaging, but aren't so complicated. Um, that are very active. Um, so we ask them to think about a, a little bit of a, a pyramid when they're designing something. You should spend the smallest amount of time talking and explaining something. You spend a little more time demonstrating or showing something and maybe having the player demonstrate it back. And you should spend the majority of your time doing something. Um, and the more that you are active and engaged, the more fun they're going to have. And if they're having a good time, they're going to come back next week. And if they keep coming back every week, then you can worry, you know, when, and when they get older about how something we want to do with our footwork, you know, and it's, it's interesting because I think when I listen to a lot of, of speakers and especially folks who are at very high levels, um, I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong, this word wrong. Proprio. Proprioceptive. Thank you. Right. Your body organizes and learns how to do things. So that's what we're teaching at really high levels. Let your body figure it out. And yet when we get down to really low levels, we want to be really mechanical, right foot, left foot, put your hand to your sit down. I'm going to roll you the ball, figure out how to stop it. Um, I'm going to put the ball on the tee. I'm going to give you a, a, a bat, figure out how to make it go over there and make it go over here. You know, the more that you really just start realizing that if you would just like, let kids play, let them figure things out. Um, then when you do want to offer something substantive about 
positioning or their hand or their footwork, it makes more sense um, because they already feel a degree of competence and, and capableness in, in just basic activities. And it doesn't feel um, you know, very mechanical or boring. I mean, it's when you think about baseball, especially when you're young, there's a lot of just boring things that happen. There's a lot of standing and waiting and waiting for your turn. Um, and you so, can write a practice plan where that doesn't happen. You can. I have a ton of youth practice plans that I've given out that has zero standing around. So we, you know, we really encourage our girls think about things that are going to be fun. Um, they are really in tune to and do a really great job of asking the, the girls who are participating in the clinic, what do you want to do? Um, how can we do that for you? What else can we do that's going to be fun? They're really uh, aware of it. I think because they're not, you know, they're still young themselves. Um, they really think about what are the things that were really important that, that they liked at practice? Um, what are the activities that they really found were, were fun and that they really thrived at? The other thing that happens, you know, when you have to learn how to coach and explain things to other people, you learn a lot about how to do the activity yourself. Um, you know, and so at the end of the day, I think they, they are becoming much more aware as well of their own, you know, what do they need to learn? How do they, how do they do, um, play better? How do they learn a skill better? Because when you have to teach it and explain it, you become much more aware of exactly how it works. You know, this off season, Kim Ang gets hired, Bianca Smith, Brewers, uh, hitting coordinator and also in the NFL, what does that do for sports in general overall and, and talk about inclusion? I mean, that opens some things up, doesn't it? So first of all, it makes the world better, right? When you, when, when everybody is included, you get new viewpoints, you get new values, you get new ways of doing things. Um, the world is just better when everybody is included in, in anything. Um, you know, I, I think from, from the standpoint of looking at somebody who has to be a first, somebody has to break a, a barrier if you're if you're a, a marginalized community if you're a minority in, in whatever field you're doing um, but at the end of the day it's the reminders of opportunities that are out there not just in these fields right so seeing uh, a woman get a chance to coach in the NFL to coach uh, you know uh, in in professional baseball to referee at the Super Bowl, right? Those are, those are examples um, of really just everything is open. Um, all those opportunities are there. The reality though is we say that a lot, um, you know, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to make light of this because I think, you know, a lot of times this, something like this happens, you get one or two people here and then you feel like somebody checked the box, like, all right, so we've done that. Um, and we go back to where we were we become satisfied that there's one, right? There's one one over here and there are two over there. The same thing, and when we look at the racial composition of coaches um, at the collegiate level, at the professional level, um, you know, we often just feel like we can check a box because we interviewed somebody or there's one of these or there are two of those. We look around, um, the reality is we are still so woefully behind when it comes to equity. And it's, it's not just having somebody in the door, right? It's having a voice and, and having, um, you know, an opportunity to, to be in a decision-making position and to not feel like you are the one um, or the only one. Um, 
you know, it's, I, I think everybody's hope is always that we stop having that it's big news that a woman got hired to do something or um, an African-American got hired to do something. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be big news. Um, it's a really great reminder of just how far we still have to go. I mean, when you think about what numbers look like and put, put women aside and look at the baseball in theory has been integrated 70 years, right? If my math is good, 70 years, we've come so little in such a long time. Um, and still are, are so behind the curve. I think, you know, especially the, the one that the thing that stands out to me, as much as we talk about, like talk about lack of coaches, lack of general managers, lack of ownership, um, you know, huge lack of, of players in positions of power. Um, count, count on your one finger, your two fingers, how many black catchers there are in major league baseball. Um, how many are on collegiate teams? How many are on high school teams? How many of them are on little league fields? Um, you know, we really have to start looking a lot more at what we're doing when it comes to, to equity and inclusion. And this isn't to take away from, it is wonderful to see women um, getting opportunities to coach that are long overdue and, and to being treated as equals who have value and things to add and, and are able to do all the same things that any other coach can do, but we are still so woefully behind um, when it comes to putting people in positions that allow them to, to, to be successful. And I think that the diversity committee, I think we're moving in the right direction. Um, you know, we still have a long ways to go and, um, you know, yeah, hopefully it's not checking boxes off because that's not the way that I feel about it. I, I think we need to get the best people in the positions and, doesn't matter what they look like or where they come from, you know, trying to get the best people in the best positions, but we also have to help too. You know, I, I think about myself personally, I've had so much help. Um, hopefully I don't take that for granted how much help I've gotten over the years that hopefully now that I'm in a position to be able to help people that I'm going to be able to do that. And, and, you know, we have to be really careful and I, different people have different views uh, about this. And I'm not speaking for the diversity committee. I'm not speaking for anybody else other than, than for me personally, but, you know, oftentimes we feel like the, the thing we're talking about is getting the, the best person for the job. And the idea that, you know, ultimately I'm going to choose the best person for the job and I'm going to be very open about who's going to apply. And I'm going to be very open about who I'm going to consider. And at the end of the day, I'm going to pick the best person. Um, there's a lot of, of social science research out there that tells us our implicit biases, may, our, our external motivation is exactly what we said. I am going to give everybody equal opportunity. I am going to be you know, proactive in, in recruiting and looking to bring in diverse people and to provide these opportunities. Um, our implicit biases will constantly prevent us from achieving what our external in motivations and intentions are. And we have to be really aware of that as much as we believe we are truly hiring the best person. And the reason we pick this person is because they are the best person for the job. Our biases have already colored and changed how we viewed people um, from the start. It's, you know, how do we check those? Do you have tips? Cause I know like da Daniel Kahneman is getting a lot of play thinking fast and slow. He's done so much great research on, on trying to battle those biases, how do you check those biases? So the first is be aware, right? And, and with being aware, it really starts with, you have to be willing to acknowledge 
that your no matter how good your external and intentional motivations are, that your implicit biases are going to operate and they're going to operate at a really high level and they're going to constantly challenge and be in opposition oftentimes to what you know as your in your intentional self would never do. Um, and so, you know, that first thing is you, you have to be aware. The second is you have to accept that your biases are preventing you from doing what you want um, and, and not to look at I wouldn't really do that. That wasn't what I was thinking. The explanations and the things you provide are what your conscious self does because that's what you believe you're doing despite the fact that your subconscious self already has done the harm. Um, you know, so awareness is a big thing. I believe there are a lot of opportunities to do some things that can help us prevent those initial biases from from impacting some of our early decision-making. So one of the things to think about, um, I, I don't quite know how this could play out in, in the hiring process, although I'm, I'm confident it can. Uh, so there's some great studies that were done uh, around concert orchestras. Um, and the fact that there weren't a lot of women in professional uh, orchestras. And so they, they looked and said, well, what we need to do is we need to have more women come and audition. And so they had more women come and audition and it made a marginal increase in but at the end of the day, there still wasn't, you know, nearly a representative number of women being chosen. So, well, maybe we need more women in the hiring process. And maybe we need more women conductors. And they tried all those things and they only, they, all of those things had very marginal impacts because at the end of the day, our biases were still coloring what was happening. They went to blind auditions and they use this very much now in, in you know, in, in orchestras. And so they use blind auditions where you can't see the person only the only thing you can do is hear the music they can't walk out on stage while you're out there you, you they, they do all of these things to be very intentional and that is the thing that made the biggest difference because we literally heard the music differently based on what we saw and how our brain already colored what we what we were witnessing and hearing and so when you can take those things out of the equation so if you can blind the application process um, which is really tough because so much of, of baseball, especially at, at higher levels, is I know this guy who I know, you know, those networking and connect, con connection things play such a big role. But they also mean then that so many people are getting shut out of, of, of the process. And they're, it's again, it's not we don't take applicants. It may not even be we don't proactively recruit and request those applicants. You will see somebody differently. You will decide that somebody from a small school either is a really great fit for you because they're from a small school and so they've had to do everything or that same applicant in a different body, you would say, you know, they just don't, they, they have a small school experience. They really aren't ready for our program. They aren't going to do these things. There are great studies out there that have been done with that around employment applications um, where you send out the exact same resumes. You change the name by, by having a stereotypical white or stereotypical black name and you see how many people are getting callbacks? Rachel Belkovic talks right. about it all the time. She, until right. she changed her her name on her app to Ray, like right. she wasn't, she was getting you nothing. Get, you don't get those callbacks, and we see it: employment, medical treatment, um, you know, musicians, school disciplinary records. It, the list goes on and on. This is not a problem that is isolated to a particular person or kind of person um, or field. 
this is part of a much larger societal problem. There are a lot of things infrastructure-wise that really need what, to It's the Aristotle effect, right? Is that what it's called, I, where teachers, uh, they've done, I can't remember the study, they they blindly did, they talk about biases with teachers, they, they gave fake tests to these students, and then they told the teachers that these five were the brightest in the class, regardless of what they were, because they it was a yes. dummy. It was a dummy test. Those five did better at the end of the better. year. It's the biasing, and and you're really just understanding. Um, and I'm going to geek out for you for a little bit because this is an area I do a lot of of work professionally in this area. Um, but you know the, the the ways in which our brain shapes the the things we hear without us being aware that it is happening um, is so, and it's so hard because our conscious mind wouldn't recognize that we're doing this and, and would, uh, would reject the idea that we're doing it. Whether you, so they have done testing, uh, they took writing samples um, and had attorneys, um, law firms look at writing samples. And sometimes they couch the, the person who wrote the sample as black. Sometimes they couch them as white. It was the same writing sample. They found more mistakes, right? The mistakes were there all the time. They found them more often when they identified that the writer was black. They scored the quality of the writing differently when they identified that the writer was white. Um, but it happens to, it's not just the external. So the, the person who's evaluating them, there's some, there's some research that was done. Uh, so one of the studies they did is they took high school students who were taking AP calculus tests. And at the beginning of the test, you know, usually we take demographic information at the start of a test. And so at the top of the, the test, they ask demographic questions to identify your gender. Students take the test on, on average, and I may have my, my numbers wrong, but let's, let's say the score is out of five points. Boys scored a 4.3 and girls scored a 3.5. When they put the question at the end, so take the test first, identify your gender at the end of the test. Girls did better, boys did worse. So not only right, were girls hampered by answering a question about themselves that they knew, they knew they were a girl when they took the test, right? But by affirmatively having to fill in that box, they performed more poorly. And boys by being reminded that they were boys did better. You know, it, it, and my daughter's getting a B in calculus right now, and she's a sophomore in high school. She still thinks she's not good at math, right. which I we talk about it all the time. I'm like, you're getting a B in a, a class that I probably would have failed, and you still don't think you're doing well in math. No, and there's a, there's a there's a whole bunch of other things around girls and and self esteem and a lot of other things that go into you know why. Men apply for jobs when they meet about 50% of the criteria and women apply for that same job when they meet about 85% of the criteria. And again, my, my numbers are, are going to be off on what those actual percentages are, but men are much more willing to apply when they meet some criteria for a job. Women are much more uh, conservative and wait until they meet almost all of the criteria and believe that they, they might be capable. And, you know, that has to do with the fact that we won't hire women who meet 50% of the criteria, but we hire men who meet 50% of the criteria all the time. It's not just the attitude of the, of, of the, the male saying, I'm not going to care. I'm going to apply anyway. Well, that's the confirmation, confirmation bias piece too. When you talk about, you know, people that self-fulfilling prophecy, there's that confirmation bias 
to that piece of it. There's so much that happens and it is so complex. Um, Being willing to have these conversations, being willing to look around your program and say, you know, my program doesn't look like what it should. And I am going to stop thinking about just looking at all the applicants equally. Um, I am going to, to start really recognizing the fact that I am probably biasing these things. Are there things I can do? Sure. Um, I could use a scoring grid for, for an application so that I have a preset thing. This is what it's going to be. This is how I'm going to score my application. And I'm going to preset what gets somebody. So if I'm you know, scoring on a scale of one to five and I'm scoring experience on that scale, it's not just going to be subjectively that I'm going to assign your experience three and somebody else whose name is Jamal, right? I'm going to score their experience. It's the same experience as yours. I'm going to score it as a two. I'm going to set out my, my criteria is you're going to get one point. If you have less than two years, you're going to get two points. If you have this many years and I've got to you know stick to things that are going to allow me to, to be a little bit more objective and at least be a little more intentional about what I'm doing. Um, I need to really just be willing to accept the data. Uh, that's another thing. You know, people often, when you get presented the data and say there is this underrepresentation, there often are a lot of explanations about, well, you know, we just didn't get good applicants, or the people aren't applying, or here's why I, I hired this guy. It doesn't really matter, right? If your numbers are what they are, if the underrepresentation is what it is, then stop looking to explain why you have it. You do. The reason you have it is because of all the biases, along with all these other things that, you know, the disadvantages create more disadvantages. Um, you know, when, when you get shut out of things early, when you aren't given opportunities early, those magnify themselves as you go. It gets harder and harder. And so just accept the fact that like, like my numbers are no good. I, it, it, it's disparate. And I need to fix it. And the solution needs to not be, I need to explain why what I did was okay. Um, it, it wasn't. Um, no matter how good you may think this is and how fair you may think you were, you externally and intentionally may have been as fair as you could be. Uh, the reality is you made decisions super early that you weren't even aware your brain had made for you. Um, and there's a ton of, of really great research. So the other thing is learn right? Be open to learning and, you know, really just learn about the history, (laughs) learn about all of the ways in which we have disadvantaged populations and continue to do that um, and and how those things play out. Um, You know, be really intentional about learning about how your your brain is working and how that's happening. Um, And then you need to just put aside um, your, your ideas that I'm looking for the best person for the job and you need to be very intentional about what you're doing. You're going to find that you got the best person uh, once you once you give that person an opportunity. But you have to to put aside the idea that you know I'm always just going to hire the best person because your brain already right already made decisions for you. You are not hiring the best person. Um, you are hiring the best person that your brain allows you to categorize as a best person. Love it. Great info. You're busy. I know how busy you are. Do you have any morning routines or evening routines that you like that you feel like help you stay on top of everything? I wish I could say yes. I wish I could say that that's what happens. Um, I I feel like I live in a state of perpetual chaos. Um, Well, how do you handle that, though? I mean, how do you handle the chaos? 
At the moment, I would say not well as I'm looking at what's on my desk at the moment and my plan of today, which was to just pick everything up and put it in a big pile so that I didn't have to look at it. How do you check those things off, though? I mean, what's your process to check in your to-do list off? uh, You know, I I mean, I'm a big I'm a big list person. I I have to write things down. Um, The only chance I have of keeping track of, of what I'm doing is to write it down. Um, I constantly need a piece of paper around because I, I'm also, you know, I think just by my nature, I function best by having, giving my head the space to have lots of ideas. And then I need to, for those ideas to land themselves on a piece of paper so that they get out of, out of my head and get out of my way of, of thinking and doing. Is that journaling for you? Do you consider that journaling? You know, I, I wish I could say I was disciplined enough to, to do that. I literally like. I I agree. I think that's the, I think that's the daily practice. Like that's journaling. But if, if you're doing it as it comes, you know, as ideas come, so you're just jotting those down when you get ideas. There are are literally like, no, like, you know, and I think whether I look at, at my, my coaching stuff. So I have, you know, I think like anybody else, right. I have these notebooks and notebooks and notebooks of notes. And they're a mix of, you're watching something and, and you're watching somebody do a drill and you're like, oh, this is a really great idea. And you're writing it down. And then you like look and you can see like two pages later, you've now like come up with some other drill that just sort of like was tangentially brought on by what you were seeing. Um, you know, and, and I think for me, that's it's that need to have that interaction between these are the things I need to do. And these are the ideas that those things spawn for me. Um, I am, I'm a huge list person. Uh, there, there are lots of lists everywhere to, to just sort of stay on track with, with what I need to get done every day. Um, you know, there are probably like three versions of my calendar floating around uh, at different places in my office. There are literally scraps of paper for me. Um, you know, and I think about this more in my, my trial life. Um, I, I'm a, a huge, if, if an idea comes, write it down and put it away in a place that you're going to be able to find it later. So every case had, every case file had a place for notes and ideas. Um, and, you know, I'd have an idea and you, you got to write it down. You got to put it in the little note file. And then when it came time to go do something, you just need to open the file and see what were those ideas I had. Uh, sometimes I'll see I had the same idea three times. I know that that's probably a really good idea. I should go with that. Um, sometimes I've found that I've changed my ideas. Uh, so something I thought about early that was good that I then, you know, thought about something later. Um, the other thing for me is I, I need to write everything down. So everything I need to think about, everything I need to do needs to get written down. For me, that's my best way of remembering something is that I actually put pen to paper and, and created some permanency. We have three three times more likely to remember it, right? By writing it down. For me, it's, it's huge, um, you know, is, is when I write something down that I, that I have a, a fighting chance of, of remembering it again. Do you have a process for going to trial? Uh, yes. So, and, and this is, this is probably like way. Cause I'm fascinated. I, you know, for, for going to trial. So you know, what, what is your process for, for going to trial to perform well in that scenario? Cause that's, that's gotta be high anxiety, a lot of pressure in that situation. It's, it's, it's a very, you know, I think, so just as a, a background for you, so I spent 20, almost 22 years as a public defender. Um, right now I do work, I do training and systemic reform work, but for, for you know, the better part of, of 22 years, people entrusted the most valuable thing that they had to me. Um, and that's a, a really awesome responsibility to, to be given and a tremendous amount of trust that somebody else is putting in you. 
Um, you know, and as, as a public defender, that meant too that my, my client didn't pick me. Uh, they didn't go out and, and choose me because they thought I was the best for the job. Uh, somebody told them that I was their, you know, that I was the, the person who was going to handle their case. Um, and, and so, it just like just like we were talking about with baseball, it's, it's it's a relationship first. You have to build a relationship. And you can't do that by just demanding, I'm here, I'm the lawyer, I went to law school, look, I have these degrees, I'm really important, I'm really smart, um, you know, just let me do my thing. At the end of the day, the decisions that I'm going to make aren't going to affect me, they're going to affect you. Um, you know, what I choose to, to raise as an argument, what I choose to make as a motion, um, it can make me feel really good. It can make me feel really smart. I could have a really great rush. If you have a really great cross-examination, you can feel phenomenal. Um, but whether I feel really great or really lousy at the end of the day, what I'm doing isn't impacting me, it's impacting somebody else. And so, you know, for me, the, the first thing in, in all of the trial work is you have to have a relationship with your client and you have to know who they are um, what they want, and what's important to them, because you are taking risks with their their freedom, right? Their family's name, their future, all of the things that are important to them. Um, and if you don't get to know them, and you don't know what is important to them, and you don't know what they value, um, you can't begin to to really do meaningful representation. And so you have to build that relationship. It's great. And, I can go and that's coaching at the high, by the way, that's coaching at the highest levels too, because you have to get that trust with that person because they need to perform well. If not, they're going home. So there's a lot of, of parallels between that and, and elite coaching. Like it's the same thing, developing relationships, getting them to buy into to what you're going to do for them. So, Yes, although a little different. And I, and I say it this way. I think that a good lawyer, um, I, I don't need you to buy in completely to what I'm going to do for you. Um, I need to buy in and what you need me to do for you. And, and in that regard, because it's at the end of the day, my job is to work for you. Um, you know, I, you are as the client, you are the boss. I am, you know, I am hopefully the educated and skilled um machinery that is going to accomplish the goal that you have. But I, you know, I have to work for you. I, I need less. And I think, you know, as you mature as a, as a lawyer, probably as you mature as a coach, you become much more willing to realize this is not about getting you to buy into the idea that I think is good and, and why I think it's good because I, you know, went to law school and I've tried all these cases and I know all these things. And this is why I think this is the best outcome for you. My job is to help you figure out what is the best outcome for you. And you may not know that yet. You may you know, need somebody to help you walk through the process and figure out like, what are my priorities? What do I need? What is most important to me? Um, and then with those things in mind, um, for me to use my expertise to help you get as close as we can to the things that you want, um, understanding that there's you know, some things that, that we may not be able to, to control, right? You know, I, there, there are some things I can't, I can't change. Um, but, you know, it's really you being willing to give up yourself and your ego um, and your sense of rightness 
for the good of your client um, and letting them be be the boss and be in charge, um, which I think if I look back at earlier in my career, not as easy to do. Really important early in my career that I needed to demonstrate that I was really smart. I was really good. I was really passionate. Like Young coaches run into the same thing. Young coaches run into the same thing of, of trying to show how smart they are. You know, it's, it's when you start to realize that you're working for somebody else, um, they are much more capable and knowledgeable. They are the person you're responsible to, um, the better you get at, at being willing to, to give up that control and, and to really let the control be in the place that it should be. Um, you know, it, it's, and then the process itself, I, I think probably the, the most just incredibly stressful thing, um, is those moments where right, the client has now like given over that responsibility to you, right? We're walking into court. We're going to make this argument. Um, we're going to present this motion, um, whatever it's going to be, um, because I can do an outstanding job and not get a good outcome. I can do a terrible job and get a great outcome. You know, I think in that way, it, 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 it parallels sports a, a lot. You can throw a great pitch and still, you know, end up giving up a, a big hit. Um, you could throw an awful pitch and still end up, you know, walking out smelling like a rose because you're, you know, your third baseman made a great play because the player still swung and missed. You know, it, it, you have to be able to separate your effort from your outcome. Um, the big difference is, you know, on a field, if the outcome is poor, I can go home and say, but I did a really great job and I worked really hard. Um, and maybe next week we'll get them. When you go to trial and the outcome is poor, um, the person who you went to trial for may not be going home. Um, they may not be going back to their family. Um, their life will never be the same. And it's very hard to separate out the fact that you know, whether you feel that you gave good effort or not, giving poor effort and having poor outcomes, right? Like, to me, that's just, it's completely unacceptable. You can't give of, you can't give to somebody else anything less than your very best because they are relying completely on you. But the reality is even when you give your best, those poor things can happen and all the resiliency sport will teach you so that you can get up tomorrow, right? I can go to trial, have a terrible outcome, and be willing tomorrow to give another client the same advice that I still think we should go to trial and here's why and here's what I think and I'm willing to, to, to go there. Um, understanding it's not about my willingness, right? I, I have to be willing to do that again because that is the job I signed up for. Um, but it is really hard when you know like the, the bad outcome may make you feel bad. That's much different than losing a game. Losing a trial in that setting is much different than losing a a game. It is a really different um, experience. It is also an incredibly uh, wonderful one um, that people will give that trust to you, that you can have the opportunity to do for somebody um, some things that can change the course of their life, protect their family, um, make their world a better place. 
you know, those, those things are incredibly powerful um, and a wonderful gift that somebody gives you to let you do that for them. Um, but it is a, a, a very, a, a very difficult, uh, but wonderful, wonderful job. So. What are our next action steps with the diversity committee? Um, you know, I think the big thing is for people who have an interest in seeing an increase, an increased diversity in our profession um, is to join up, um, be, a, be a part of this, be a part of the conversation, ask the questions, show up to the meetings um, and, and listen. Uh, you know, that's, that's the other thing. If you're gonna come into the room and you wanna learn about this issue, come into the room with the humbleness to listen um, rather than coming into the room with the expectation that you already know the solution. Thanks for your time, Bonnie. Totally my pleasure. Thanks again to Bonnie for jumping on with me. She's a huge part of the growth of the ABCA. She's bringing a unique perspective to the organization to help us grow. I love when I get a chance to sit down with her because she always teaches me new things. Thanks again to John Litchfield, Zach Hale, and Matt West in the ABCA office for all their help on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email, rbrownlee at abca.org, Twitter at coachb underscore abca, Instagram, ryanbrownlee17, or direct message me via the MyABCA app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you.